0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at Candeochurch.com. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. And as you're turning there, I want you to think of if someone were to ask you to make a list of eight things that would make your life great. Eight things. You don't get three wishes, you get eight wishes. Eight things that if you had these things that by the end of your life, you would go, that was a great life. What would be on that list? Maybe for you, it would be good health. I want to be healthy. Maybe for you, it would be, uh, I'd love to raise children who, when they leave the house, they come home, not because they have to, but because they want to. I want to have a good relationship with my kids. Maybe for you, it would be that you want to travel the world. Maybe visit every continent. That'd be awesome. Maybe for you, it'd be having a lot of money or a secure retirement or uh, how about this one? No taxes. No taxes. That'd be fantastic. What a great life. Maybe it would be every time you step on the bathroom scale from now until the time you die, it would be a particular number. It would never change. That'd be nice. Maybe it'd be marrying that girl or that guy or a certain kind of girl or a certain kind of guy. Maybe it would be having children. Maybe it would be having grandchildren. Maybe you go, I want to own my own business or I want to be my own boss. I remember when I was six years old, I distinctly remember this laying in bed one night and I could not sleep. The reason I couldn't sleep was because I was trying so hard to learn how to whistle. I couldn't whistle. I could tie my shoes, but I couldn't whistle. And in my mind, I'm not not making this up and I'm not exaggerating this. I thought as a six-year-old that if I knew how to tie my shoes and whistle, I was set. Like, my life would be good. I was halfway there. I could tie my shoes. I just need to learn how to whistle. My Andy Griffith life was just before me. That'd be a good life. Well, whether you're a student this morning or whether you're a CEO, what we're gonna get in our passage this morning is actually Jesus's list of what it really means to live a successful life according to God's kingdom. And the way that he's gonna show us this is he's gonna show us three things that we're gonna see throughout this list. We're gonna see the character of the kingdom life. We're gonna see the conduct of the kingdom life. And we're going to see the consequence of the kingdom life. The character of the kingdom life, the conduct of the kingdom life, and the consequence of the kingdom life. Now, if you have your Bible open, you'll see that there's probably a heading at the beginning of these verses in Matthew chapter 5 that says the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes is not in reference to attitudes. Like, this is not be these attitudes. That's not what that means. What Beatitudes simply means is blessings. And this... Actually, this this sermon series was originally going to be a series on the Beatitudes. So we were going to spend all spring on the Beatitudes. And what we've done in expanding the series is we've taken... A spring and put it into a sermon. So I'm going to do my best to get us through all these. But as we walk through these, what we need to have in the back of our minds and, and and understand is that don't forget the original audience that Jesus is talking to here. Remember, like I said last week, that Jesus's original audience here in the Sermon on the Mount is the Jews, and what the Jews were expecting was that they were expecting that the Messiah who had been promised in the Old Testament, that this Messiah would come and be their conquering king, that that he would come and liberate them from the oppression of Rome and overthrow Rome and establish Israel to their rightful place of position and power. And so they were expecting a conquering king. So put yourself in their shoes that as they expect a king to come into power, they are thinking that, well, if our king comes into power and overthrows the government, then we, as his people, are going to be like rock stars with him as he inaugurates this new kingdom of Israel back to its rightful place. So imagine their shock when Jesus begins here in Matthew 5, verse 3, by saying this, by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, wait a second, Jesus. The first character trait of those in the kingdom is to have insufficient resources, to be poor. Like, I thought, I thought that the king was gonna come and he was gonna give us everything we need. Like, we were gonna lack nothing, but now what you're saying, Jesus, is that blessed are those who have insufficient resources. But Jesus isn't talking here about material poverty because what he says is he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, blessed are those who recognize that they lack the spiritual resources to come to God. Poverty is insufficient resources. Blessed are those who recognize their insufficient resources to come to God. Now, don't forget that just before this, Jesus had just been going around healing a bunch of people. They, they had been confronted with a bunch of physical affliction with a bunch of material poverty. There was a lot of of things happening that he was addressing, physical need that he was addressing. But now he turns to his disciples and he starts talking about poverty of spirit as if to make the connection for his disciples that while we certainly are to care for those who are in physical and material need, we are certainly to, to seek ways to, out of the abundance of our resources, to meet the needs of others. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, don't forget, though, that all physical suffering and all material poverty is a physical signpost of what is true of all of us spiritually before God. That no matter how much money you have, no matter how healthy you are, that we all lack sufficient resources to come to God Now, why does Jesus start with blessed are the poor in spirit? The reason why he starts with blessed are the poor in spirit is it's because it's this character trait of kingdom people. It's this reality that those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God, that it's this that is the very basis upon which everything else he is going to say will stand. Recognizing that you bring nothing in and of yourself that impresses God. And we absolutely hate this. We hate this. Because what Jesus is saying is, blessed are the weak. We hate being weak. This is why it's an insult. It's taken as an insult when someone might say, well, Christianity is just a crutch. Because if Christianity is a crutch, then that means that Christianity is for cripples. And we don't want to be crippled. We don't want to have need We don't want to be broken. We don't like to think of ourselves as crippled before God. We hate being weak. We hate being empty-handed. We don't like having nothing to offer. This is why when someone invites you over to their house for dinner, the first question you ask is, what can I bring? Because we don't want to come empty-handed. Like we want to have something to offer. It's incredibly humbling to walk into someone's house for dinner with nothing, which is why we hate it. Let me bring something, even if it's the vegetable tray that no one's going to eat. At least I brought something. You can keep the ranch. What Jesus is saying is that kingdom people are those who first recognize that you have nothing in and of yourself to offer to God. So then what happens when you have this poverty of spirit? Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Maybe you've heard this verse at funerals. But Jesus isn't talking here about sadness in general, though it is true that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. That is true. But Jesus right here is not talking about sadness in general. What he's talking about is that those who recognize their poverty of spirit will mourn over the very thing that makes you poor in spirit, namely your sin. How can you know if you have this poverty of spirit that Jesus is talking about? You'll know it by whether or not you mourn over your sin. Does your sin in your life actually grieve you? And I'm not saying like you just intellectually assent to that fact where it's like, yeah, You're right. I don't do everything right all the time. I'm not perfect. Yes, I'm a sinner. It's like, it's not just that you like intellectually will say that. Like, does the fact that you sin, does the sin in your life actually produce something like something grievous within you? Do you mourn over your sin? Now there's a difference between godly guilt and crippling shame. Like there's a difference here. Like Jesus is not saying that Kingdom people, that Christians are those who just constantly live in shame, that they constantly walk around very melancholy, very depressed, going, oh, I'm just a terrible person. Like the, the reality of Romans 8 is true, that, that in Christ there is no condemnation. That is absolutely true. But there is a difference between condemnation and godly contrition. A right remorse and response To your sin. So while we aren't meant to live in a constant state of shame and condemnation, if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, then your sin will grieve you. And so this poverty of spirit will lead to mourning over the sin that has caused that poverty of spirit, which will then lead to verse 5 Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the humble. I think a more accurate word here is the word meek. Maybe some of your translations say that. Blessed are the meek. And now meekness is not a synonym for weakness. Like this is not necessarily to say like, blessed are those who are just like, who are doormats. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who just like, everyone just walks all over them. No, meekness is instead the picture of someone who abstains from using their own strength and power for their benefit and instead using it for the benefit of someone else. Like meekness is is quite literally uh, one who keeps their sword sheathed. Now remember, to a people expecting the king to come and overthrow Rome, what they are expecting to hear is blessed are the powerful for they will overthrow Rome and establish Israel. And so blessed are the meek is completely countercultural, cultural goes completely against what they expected the king to come and do. You see kingdom people do not unleash the fullness of their strength on others. Kingdom people do not bring a gun to a knife fight. Kingdom people do not seek to obliterate their opponents on social media. No, kingdom people, because they know their own poverty of spirit, because they are grieved by their own sin, kingdom people are emptied of any self-righteous desire to defend their own pride or to defend their own image before others. But notice this. Jesus, in these first three, it's, it's, very, it's very clear. You, you could kind of summarize it like by Jesus saying, blessed are the empty. But he doesn't just leave us. At emptiness. Look at verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Maybe you've had the experience uh, with your kids, or if you've been around kids, where, um, at least in our house, usually it's around like 10 in the morning. Where they come to you and they go, I'm hungry. You're okay. And so you give them like four options, right? They don't want any of them, none of them. And the reason is, is because the options you gave them were things that are like actually good for them, or it's like, hey, you can, you can have some fruit, you can have some vegetables, you can have some of the leftover dinner from last night, you know, like, but what they were wanting was they were wanting cupcakes with a side of Cheetos, and that's what they were wanting, Right. And so, generally when that happens, and it's 10 in the morning, right? Any time of the day, for any sustained period of time, that can be a problem. Like, but 10 in the morning? Like, any time that that happens at our house, like, I'll tell my kids, like, hey, just, just so you know, cupcakes were not invented for when you're hungry. Like, cupcakes have nothing to do with actual hunger. Because you know, it won't be but three minutes later After you've inhaled that cupcake, that you'll be hungry again. If you eat cupcakes and Cheetos exclusively, you will die. You will die. Because cupcakes are more about making your taste buds happy than they are about making your stomach full, right? And what Jesus is saying is that if you want to be filled, you need to be hungry for the thing that God says will fill you. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, this is a righteousness that comes from Christ, but is also empowered through Christ. Maybe you know these famous verses. Maybe, maybe, maybe as, as someone has maybe taught you how to share the gospel or something like that, you've heard Ephesians 2 8 through 9. That says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is the righteousness that comes from Christ. It's a gift of God, not from your own works. Like it is the grace of God, the grace of Christ's righteousness given to you as a result of his obedience. It's a righteousness from Christ. But there's also verse 10. We so often forget verse 10, where it says this, right after righteousness from Christ, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the order here? Like you have received righteousness from Christ, and now you have been empowered to live righteously through Christ. From Christ, through Christ. Kingdom people, hunger not for self-indulgence, But they hunger for a righteous life that comes from Christ and is lived out through Christ. So we have poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, humility, hungering for righteousness. All of these things are the character of the kingdom life. And this character of the kingdom life will then lead into the conduct of the kingdom life. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who recognize that you have sinned against God more than anyone could sin against you. Now, that's not to say no one has ever sinned against you. That's not to say that bad things have not happened to you. You say, Jake, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know what they did. I say, absolutely. I don't know what they did, but I know who we are before a holy God. You have sinned against God way more than anyone could ever sin against you. Blessed are the merciful. But what is mercy? What is mercy? What does it mean to be merciful? You might remember the parable of the, of the good Samaritan where there's the guy who's walking on the road and he gets, he gets captured by thieves and robbers. He gets beaten up almost to the point of death. And he's left on the side of the road for dead. And along comes a priest and a priest sees this man sitting on the road and he passes him by. And along comes a Levite and he sees this man sitting, you know, laying there on the road and he passes him by. But then you have the Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews, the Samaritan comes sees this man in his great need, and he actually does something about it. And at the end of this parable, Jesus asks the, the hearers of it, he asked them this question, which one of these proved to be a neighbor to the man? To which they replied, the one who showed him mercy. What is mercy? As we see the good Samaritan, what is mercy? Mercy is seeking to relieve the consequences of sin in others and is also providing for the needs of others at great cost to yourself. Seeking to relieve the consequences of sin in others and seeking to meet the needs of others at great cost to yourself. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are you when you see someone in need and regardless of how they got there, you help. Blessed are you When you kill that critical spirit within yourself that sees someone in need and you automatically go, well, you sleep in the bed that you make. Blessed are you when you kill that spirit, that attitude within yourself, that like, it's that, it's that attitude that would have come across this man on the road and you'd have looked at him and you would have said, well, why did he choose to go down this road anyway? Didn't he know that there were robbers? Why was he not carrying concealed where he could have defended himself? but instead you see someone in need. And yeah, maybe they should have done other things. Maybe they should have done things, put themselves in a better situation. But you see them and you remember the mercy that you have been shown by God. And you help at great cost to yourself yourself. Blessed are the merciful, because you know that you've sinned against God more than anyone has sinned against God, and yet God has shown you mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure of heart. Purity of heart. What does that mean? Purity of heart is an undivided allegiance to and unobstructed vision of who God is. Purity of heart. An undivided allegiance to And an unobstructed vision of who God is. Sinclair Ferguson once said that big things can be obscured by small things if they are brought near enough to our eyes. You think of the person standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon's pretty big. They're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon on their phone. I don't, I don't care what phone you have. Like you could have the, the newest and the best iPhone 14 Max Plus with the 13 cameras on the back. Like it, you could you could have a you could have a flat screen TV for a phone. You know, and if you're but you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon, but if your phone is right in your face, which one looks bigger? Actually, the smaller object looks bigger because of its proximity to your view. What consumes the attention of your thoughts and affections? Where does your mind go when it like goes into neutral? You know, that's like 90% of my life is neutral. Like, it's like when you're just kind of just hanging out. Where does your mind go? Does it go to God, his greatness, his beauty, it's grace towards you in Jesus Christ, or does it go to the million other things that could distract you and me? Smaller things than God Himself. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, remember Jesus' audience here, they were expecting to be men of war. Blessed are the warriors. Those who fight. And Jesus says, no. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who seek peace wherever they go. Now, to be sure, this is not a false sense of peace. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Which is a totally different thing. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Which, at times, in order to make peace, you have to actually deal with the issues at hand, do you not? You have to to talk openly about the conflict you're having. You have to go there to make peace. But here's the thing about peacemakers in the kingdom is that as you do that, kingdom people conduct themselves in such a way that it's clear that your main concern is not your victory, but it's their good. Your main concern is not that that at the end of the conversation that they would just go, fine, you're right, but that you would be reconciled with one another. So can I just make a suggestion real quick here that if we as a church, if we as a people are going to be defined by being people of peace, that before you jump in that comment thread, or before you fire off that text message, can I suggest that before you do that, try to get coffee or lunch with the person that you would be sending that to? And you go, well, I don't know. They're they're a stranger. I go, then fine. Then don't comment. Try to get face-to-face with that person because the reality is, is that we act in ways digitally that we would never act personally, physically. Like, it, like so many of us, if we acted in like real life, the way that we act online, we would get beat up a lot. And we should. You know, like try to get face-to-face with the people that you're in conflict with. I have found... I can't think of an exception. Most often, when I've, when I've been in conflict with someone, even when it's been like, we, we believe totally different things, we're on totally different pages, totally different ends of the spectrum, we disagree deeply that there's something about sitting across the table from them that even by the end of the conversation, we may not walk away and go, oh, we agree. We actually were on the same page. No, that, that, hap- that doesn't Often happen. But what happens is is that as I'm sitting across the table with them, that the physical presence of being together forces me, oh, and praise God for it, forces me to recognize that this is a person created in the image of God with great value and worth and is worthy of my respect, regardless of whether I agree with them or not. There is something about a physical interaction that causes you to change the nature of that conversation. So before you comment, before you text, try to grab coffee or lunch. But this is not just peacemaking between people and people, though that's certainly in view here. This is also being a peacemaker in that it's embracing your God-given ministry of reconciliation in calling people to have peace with God. Because we as kingdom people know that peace on earth will not happen before we first have peace with God. So we see the character of the kingdom life, the conduct of the kingdom life, and then Jesus shows us the result, the consequence of the kingdom life. You might think, well, if I live this way, then if this is Jesus' list, then life must be better. Like things must end up going great if I just adhere to this. Look at what he says. Verse 10. After all this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. See, I think think one thing that makes this list a little difficult for us to understand is that we so quickly associate blessing with circumstantial happiness, that somehow to be blessed means to have everything I want, to be comfortable, and to be happy. In fact, some some translations translate this word blessed into the word happy. It's a hard word to translate into English. But blessing is not happiness and it's not circumstantial happiness or comfort. To be blessed by God means to be favored by God, regardless of the situation that you're in, to have God's favor upon you, to be a benefactor of God's grace. And so what Jesus is doing is he's making it abundantly clear that the consequence of the kingdom life is that the kingdom life will more often Be one of friction than one of luxury. That the kingdom life will more often be one of conflict. Than one of comfort. This is why the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1 says that, that if I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ because he recognized that, I, that as I live according to the values of the kingdom of God, it's going to come into friction. It's going to come into conflict with the values of the world. And if I am trying to please everyone, I will ultimately end up not pleasing Christ. Now, this is not to say, we've talked about this before, this is not to say that this now gives us a free pass to be an obnoxious Christian butthead. That is not what this is saying. Like, sometimes it's like, well, yeah, you're being obnoxious. Like, of course no one's going to like that. I don't like that, and I'm your brother in Christ. Like, but that's not saying be obnoxious. But it does mean that the world will ultimately hate kingdom people because the world ultimately hates your king. They hated your king so much that they nailed him to a Roman cross. So don't be surprised if they hate you as well. But one question remains. How can Jesus promise all of these blessings? Because if you know your Old Testament you'll know that as the law is given, that with the law comes curses to those who don't obey the law. We see this time and time again, especially if you go to Deuteronomy 27, you'll see over and over and over, cursed is anyone who does this, cursed is anyone who does this, cursed is anyone who breaks the law. It's basically the whole chapter. Curse, 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 curse. So how is it? that Jesus can look at a bunch of lawbreakers like you and me and promise words of blessing. How can Jesus do that? Galatians chapter three, verses 13 and 14. Here's how he can do it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. How can Jesus proclaim blessing to a cursed people? It's because he would soon come down from that mountain and he would soon take our poverty of spirit upon himself. He would grieve for our sin. He would humbly set aside his rights. And submit to the will of the Father, Jesus Christ, most merciful, most pure in heart, our great peacemaker who is persecuted more than any of us ever will be so that we could have peace with God. You see, soon after Jesus would finish these words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, soon after this, he would come down from the mountain, but then he would walk up another hill and take the curse of your disobedience, so that you could receive the blessing of his obedience and now be given power by his spirit to walk in obedience. You see, Jesus lived the successful kingdom life so that by faith, we could have the character of the kingdom life. Jesus lived the successful kingdom life so that by faith we could live according to the conduct of the kingdom life. Jesus lived the successful kingdom life so that when we are persecuted for righteousness sake we can still rejoice even as we endure the consequences of living the kingdom life. So yes this morning as we walk through these Beatitudes, Jesus' list of a successful kingdom life. Look at yourself and ask yourself how does my list compare to Jesus's? How do my values compare to Jesus's? Do I recognize my poverty of spirit? That in and of myself, I bring nothing to the table? Do I mourn over my sin? Is my life marked by meekness rather than aggression? Am I more satisfied by indulgence rather than righteousness? Am I known more as being critical than being merciful? Is my inner life, that purity of heart, is my inner life defined by a Godward focus? Or is my focus on everything But God, am am I a peacemaker or am I a striker of blows? Am I seeking the applause of the world or am I living to please Christ for his glory? Look at yourself. In what ways do you need to grow as a kingdom person? But after you've looked at yourself, like I said last week, don't, don't just look at yourself. After you've looked at yourself, look to Christ. Look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who can and will change us more and more into his likeness if we would continue to submit to his good rule and authority. Would this be a list that defines you? Would this be a list that defines our church as we submit to Christ and walk in his ways? I'd love to pray for us to that end this morning. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, it'd be really easy to look at this list as a list of requirements. Things we have to do in order for you to be happy with us, but we see the very first one we are poor in spirit. We bring nothing to the table, we don't have the strength to do this perfectly. So Jesus, would you do something in us and through us? Would we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit? And would this not be like our list of requirements, but would this be our response as we respond to your great grace and mercy toward us? Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your finished work. That you have made peace with us to God. We glorify your name. We submit to your leadership, our good and mighty and merciful king. Pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.